In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Ephesians, um, chapter 5. Last week we, um, we studied chapter 4, really the last half of the book of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are primarily focusing on like the practical aspects of the Christian life, and we began speaking about that last time, and, and also this time um, St. Paul is going to continue speaking about kind of the the expectations and the requirements and the daily life that the Christian should um, be, be living. So he starts out and he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So he, he's making it clear that our Christian behavior is not only governed by the commandments, but by the example, right? Like God ex exemplifies his commandments and specifically in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ where we see uh, a, a human image a human person in front of us who is exemplifying all of the law so if someone has a question how is it that we should apply the law how is it that God in understands or, or intends for us to live the law we look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and he is the fulfillment of all of the law in one person that's why when we say what would Jesus do what would Jesus do means that if I were to fulfill the full commandment of God in, in my own life, what would it look like? It would look like the life of Jesus Christ, right? So we, tr we see true examples of love and peace and gentleness and kindness and mercy and, um, and all of these things. And we also see it in his followers, in his disciples. We see it in those people who followed him, so specifically the 12 disciples and the 72 apostles but we also see it in the life of all believers um, in John 14 verse 12 he, the Lord says most assuredly I say to you he who believes in me the works that I do he will do also and greater works than these he will do because I go to my father so he's saying once you become a Christian once you are a disciple of Christ then you will do all that I do right you will live the way that I live um, also in, in 1 John 3.16, it says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So how is it that he says that we know love? We know love not just through the commandments of God, but we know love through the, the living example, because he laid down his life for us, and then he is calling us also to lay down our life. Lest we read the commandment and we misunderstand it, or we read it and we apply it in the wrong way, or lest we ignore certain parts of it that we think are not important, or when we read different parts that seem to be at odds with each other and we don't know how to reconcile these two things together, we see the perfect answer um, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the perfect answer in the lives of the saints of how is it that they lived fully the commandment. So he's saying, be imitators of God. And actually, St. Paul, when he was speaking to the Corinthians, he said the same about himself to them. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And this is why we speak about how we are a church of the fathers and a church of discipleship, because our understanding can sometimes be flawed or limited until we see it played out in the life of someone else. I remember when I... Um, when I uh, was considering joining the seminary, this was a long time ago, um, you know, the seminary, the one we have in the diocese, it's a four-year program, and you meet 
uh, on Memorial Day weekend and Labor Day weekend. So twice a year for four years. So you go eight times, and these are the long weekends that people usually go on vacation. So if you were to make a commitment to attend the seminary, you're committing to essentially sacrificing these weekends to attend 27 hours of lectures um, on each each weekend. Uh, so so I wanted to I wanted to join it, but at the same time I thought to myself like it would be convenient, more convenient for sure, if we could just have access to all of this uh, information and then I'll just read it, right? I'll read it on my own, right? So why go there and, and use up all of that time and whereas I can read it just on my own. So when I was speaking to the administrators of the seminary, um, I asked them, why don't you offer a remote option so people can, can do that? And the answer I got was it, was, it was exactly related to the discipleship. They said, if you go and you read this information on your own, yes, you will understand and you'll have knowledge. But you are not, this is developing the discipleship of like learning under like the instruction and, and, and learning from the, the, the people themselves, the, the, the teachers themselves who are, you know, the majority of them were priests and they were, they were very godly people, very knowledgeable people, people that you were really impressed with when you go and you meet with them and you talk to them. So I said, okay. So I, I enrolled in the seminary and I started to go. And sure enough, I realized that that's actually the thing that I love the most about the seminary. It was the relationship to the, the teachers of the courses and the relationship you develop with them and the kind of the inspiration that you receive by seeing their love of this material and their love for orthodoxy and theology and to understand and so on. So the idea that we are learning from someone tangible, someone that we can see in front of us that is the embodiment of all of the truth, the embodiment of righteousness, right? It's, it's very different than just reading commandments that then, you know, maybe each of us processes those things differently or we don't really have a good sense of what does it really look like. Even in the lives, for instance, of children, when parents are raising their children, we always say what parents are, or children are going to learn more from the what the parents do rather than what the parents say. You know, parents might say all kinds of stuff, but if they don't see it played out in their own life, that those good habits is not are not going to stick, right? So if we want to see truly an example of 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 someone who who lived the Christian life, of course we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, we look to the disciples, we look to Saint Paul, we look to the saints, and we look to godly people even in the church. You know, we look to them and we say, I want to be like this person. I want to be able to pray like this person. I want to be able to have the patience like this person. Even though we all know that, yes, prayer is important and patience is important and all these virtues are important. But until you see it actually existing in the life of a person, like incarnated in a person, it's maybe more a theoretical understanding of it. And, and, and maybe part of us makes the excuse, well, this isn't really practical to live this way. Yeah, love your enemies. Okay, it sounds good on paper. But to actually see it lived out in the life of a person makes it take on a completely different dimension, that this is attainable, that this is something that is, like this is what Christ intended. And you see the benefits of these things in the life of each person. So he's saying be imitators, be imitators of God. St. John Chrysostom, he also speaks about this. He says, as your Lord loves you, love your friend. If you cannot love him as much as he loves you, meaning as much as God loves you, love as much as you can. Forgive others. When you follow the Lord Jesus, you follow his example. It is our duty to forgive others their sins more than we forgive them their financial debts. He's giving this example. It's like, you know, like, like our, our, sometimes if someone is not able to pay us financially, 
then we say, okay, you don't have to pay me. But he's saying the, 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 the forgiveness of the spiritual debt, of the sin debt, is greater than the, the, the responsibility to um, forgive the financial debt. When you forgive others their sins, then you are truly following God. You cannot say that you are poor and unable to forgive others their debts, for it is in your authority to forgive others their sins. Listen, he is offering you a piece of advice, for he is urging you as dear children. Truly, there is another reason to follow him, because you are called his son. Not all children follow their father, but only the dear children. So here in this imploring of St. Paul, saying, be imitators of God, saying, what is the reason you should be imitators of God? Do we follow the commandments of God out of fear? We follow because we're afraid that if we don't follow certain commandments, then there will be condemnation as a result. There will be um, lack of blessing. You know, sometimes people think that, um, you know, something bad happened to me, um, and that's because I didn't pray in the morning. Is it really? Is it that because you didn't pray in the morning, then that means something bad happened to you the same day? What kind of God is this who would do this, right? This is, this is, this is not the way that God operates, right? If we are his dear children... God does not allow us to fall into calamity as like in a in, in, like just to just out of spite or anger, right? God wants us to learn good principles. Yes, He might allow us to have trials and struggles, but the purpose of those things is for us to learn. Not that God is just going to withhold His blessing from us and to see us, you know, suffer because He's upset with us because we didn't do something that He wanted us to do. If we truly see that we are dear, dear children. In the, in the eyes of God, then our love to him should be as a response to that. We see, for instance, the love that he has for us when in the incarnation, when he you know, allowed himself to be debased, to become a human being, and to suffer at the hands of other human beings. Right? We see his love in this. We see that we are dear children to him, even though we don't really have any good reason to say why we are, good ch we are dear children. Why is it that he loves us as much as he does? There's no good answer to that question of why but but we are so so if if i see that god sees me as such as a, as a dear child to him then i will desire to be like him just like a child wants to copy his his father right he has, he loves his father he wants to copy his father he sees his father doing something he wants to do it right and and so it's important for us to 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 to, to understand what am i doing why am i doing this you know one time somebody was talking to me about like, uh, why is it that we can't just live a life however we want, commit sins that we want, and then at the end of our life we will repent? And so because we believe God is merciful, he will forgive us our sins, and so we'll be fine. So apart from the reasoning that well, we might die at a time we don't expect, if you put that aside for a moment, say, well, how is it that we see God? Do we see God as just like this person who is there to bless me and to give me good things and I can abuse him however I want, do whatever I want to him, as long as that, I'm going to, you said, you said that at the end of my life, you know, no matter how much my sins are, if I ask for forgiveness, you will forgive me. So I will abuse your mercy, right? This isn't a relationship of a dear child, right? This isn't uh, someone who is, who is a loving child to the father, right? This is someone who is like trying to, tr trying to game the system, right? Some, some, if, if truly we are saying that everything that we do is about our relationship to Christ, the way we treat him is according to this relationship. We are doing things 
because we want to be with him. We pray because we want to be with him, not just because we have a checkbox to check. Now, maybe um, in order to get to that stage where I am doing things with a full heart and with full understanding and with joy, maybe to get to that point, I have to take the baby steps of doing things with the checkboxes. And I'm, I'm not saying that that's wrong. But that can't be, you know, the, the final stage. That can't be what we think is what spirituality is. Is that we're just forcing ourselves against our will all the time to do things we don't want to do. No, if, if we truly see that the Lord is a, is a father to us and, and, and a good father to us, then we enjoy being with him. We enjoy sacrificing other things to be with him. It doesn't mean that it's not difficult, but it means that this is the response of someone who truly loves, right? This is, this is the true love. So we are imitating God as dear children, as children who want to imitate their father, not because we are afraid of, of, the, of the punishment, but because we, we love him and we want to be with him. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us and uh, as an offering and a sacrifice of God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Okay, This uh, offering, this sacrifice that we make to God is to the Lord like a sweet-smelling aroma. Just as it says in the Old Testament that when people would offer the sacrifice on the altar, that the smell of that sacrifice would rise up as though rising up to heaven and the Lord would smell it like a sweet-smelling aroma. Meaning, whenever we offer sacrifice to God, it is pleasing to Him. Okay? But this sacrifice, which is why we call it sacrifice, means that you are giving up something. You know, those people who were offering the animal sacrifices, the Lord said, offer your best animals. You know, they, they own these animals or they would pay money for these animals. Um, and they say, offer me the best thing. Like you are giving up something. Like it has to hurt a little bit. You know, when, when King David wanted to buy this threshing floor uh, where he would off use it to offer sacrifices to God, the person who owned this threshing floor told him, I will give it to you for free. If you want to, uh, you know, if you want to off use this to offer sacrifices to God, I will, I will give it to you for free. I won't charge anything. And King David's response is no. I will, I, will, I will not offer to God with something that costs me nothing, right? I will not, I will not give to, as an offering to God with something that came for free. It has to cost me something, right? Because that is the act of love. That is what a sacrifice is. It is I am giving something that I enjoy, that I benefit from. This is why always God would say, give of your first fruits. Like give of the ones that is the most difficult to give. You know, give the best one, the one you would enjoy to have for yourself, right? Give, give that. And in this sacrifice that we offer to Christ, it, this is a demonstration of our love. He's saying, walk in love as Christ also loved us. So if we truly comprehend the love of God and know the love of God, then it should be easy for me to give of my best because I recognize that God is the one who has given it to me. Like God shared with me his best and gives me and blesses me with so many good things. So for me to give of what is mine back to him again, it should not be, it should not be something that is intolerable for us. It should be something lovely that we give of him. Also, um, service, for instance, right? Um, you know, when we, when we serve other people, right? When we serve other people, it is, it is like serving the Lord. Like Christ said, when, when you give to the least of these, it is like you give it to me. And when you abuse and misuse the least of these, you are doing it to me, right? 
So even as we are serving other people, this is a sacrifice that we make of ourselves and we make it directly to God. You know, sometimes we have the mentality of like, there's certain people I like to serve because they're easy to serve and they're appreciative. And there's other people that I really don't like serving because they're, the ob- they're difficult and they're always complaining and whatnot. And so we think to ourselves like, okay, I, I like this service and I don't like that service. But if we put in our mind that actually when we serve both of these people, we are serving Christ himself, right? And whatever reward we receive is not a reward to be had from these people, but from God himself. Um, the Lord actually served us when we were undeserving. It says in Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? The Lord did not wait for a time when we had you know, reformed our ways, when we had taken a step up, when we got our act together, when things now were, you know, going in the best, in a better direction. And then he said, okay, now because you've demonstrated some goodness, now I will come and, 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 and offer salvation to you, right? He didn't say that. He said, no, actually during a time where we were still sinners. Like we didn't, we didn't do anything to deserve the work of salvation. We didn't do anything to deserve the sacrifice that God made for us. So again, the, our motivation for why we serve God, our motivation should be as a response to his love. Not just, you know, like in our church, we, we speak so much about discipline and, and wanting to do things for the right reason and asceticism and crucifying the flesh. And all those things are, are true, right? But, but as we do those things, our goal should be to do those things out of love, out of, out of, out of complete willingness. And even as we are denying ourselves like say food on fasting days, even as we are doing prostrations, even as we are doing those things, the goal is not those things, right? Like sometimes we turn those things into the goal. We turn those things into be like the, the target, you know? As long as I make my number of prostrations, then I'm good. As long as I didn't eat the certain food today, then I'm good. As long as I pray the number of hours I'm supposed to pray, then I'm good. No, those things are not the goal, right? The goal is to be in union with Christ. And the goal is to demonstrate our love for Christ by sacrificing of ourselves to him. And if we can do that, even if it is difficult, even if we are pushing ourselves to do it, it is still an act of love. Actually, the person who is able to push themselves when they have no natural desire to do something, maybe actually in the eyes of God, this is a greater sacrifice. You know, like there are some people who um, are naturally gifted in a certain area. And when they use that gift, everything comes out perfect right and they do it without any struggle you know, like someone maybe who's like very intelligent always gets straight A's they barely put any effort to study and the outcome is you know they're very successful whereas another person maybe they have to study like crazy amounts just to get a B or maybe a C so when you look at the outcome you say yeah the A student they're obviously more t- you know they're, they're obviously better in terms of the outcome but in the eyes of the uh, like in their effort when you look at their effort who who gave the most effort it is the one who actually got the lower grades, put in the most effort. In the eyes of God, that person is the one to be commended, right? The one who, who pushed against their nature to, 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 to sacrifice and to feel pain in, in the giving. This is the one who demonstrates the greater work and in this context here of our spiritual life, demonstrates this, the greater love. The greatest love, which is really amazing, is, you know, like how can a God who is infinite and omnipotent and in every way complete, how can he sacrifice? What does it even mean for him to sacrifice? How can he? 
You know, what is, how, how, can, how can a God who is all-powerful and, and there, he has no weakness in him, how can he, how can he do something? You know, it's like, like if I had an infinite amount of money and I gave you a trillion dollars, I've sacrificed nothing. No matter how much I bless you with that, no matter how much I give away, I haven't sacrificed anything because my resources are infinite, right? So how is it possible that this God who is infinite in his resources is actually going to demonstrate the love that he has because he has to give up something, right? So it's when we say that the Lord in his incarnation, he emptied himself. He, uh, he allowed himself to take on the weakness of a human being. He allowed himself to suffer. He allowed himself to hunger and to thirst and to be beaten and to be spat on and to be disrespected. He allowed himself to be killed. He, his life, he actually, the life that he took on as a human being is like one of the worst possible lives you can imagine for any human being to have. From the moment of his birth to the moment of his death, he suffered. And this is the life he chose. You know, maybe if one of us has such a life, we'll say that we were victims of our circumstances, you know? We don't have any control of it. That's just, that's just the situation we were born into. That's the situation we live. That's the situ situation. But this is God we're talking about, right? He had exact control of his circumstances, and he could have been born in any circumstance he wanted, but the circumstances that he chose were the ones where he had to give the most at every stage and every moment um, of his life. And, of course, we know culminating in his crucifixion. So this is the demonstration of how an infinite God could give of himself, not to give out of his plenty, but to actually sacrifice something. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom uh, of Christ and God. So, now having established the love of God, and having established how we should respond to his love, and that that love involves sacrifice, whether God's love to us or our love to God, there is a sacrifice. Okay, So now he is turning his attention to the works of the flesh. Okay, These works of the flesh are the natural works of the flesh. This is what the flesh naturally wants. The flesh wants fornication. The flesh naturally covets. The flesh nas naturally speaks foolishly, um, coarse jesting, all these kinds of sins and, and many, many more. Those are the natural state of the flesh. That is the state by in which we were born, okay? Because we are born in corruption, right? We have, we have the corrupted nature in our birth, and so that is the state of our birth. From the moment we are born, these are our characteristics, okay? But these, in the light of now being called to be a child of God, to, that we are called to walk away from, these dark, from this darkness, which is the acts of the flesh, and now embrace the acts of the Spirit. Saying you are no, it is no longer fitting for you, now having been called for salvation, to continue to walk in the flesh. Right? Because if you are now the child of God, how could you continue to live in the original state that you were at the beginning? These are the actions 
of the old man, of the corrupted man, not the actions of the new man, the enlightened man, the glorious man, right? This is the actions of darkness, not the children of the light. In uh, 1 Peter 4, 2, he says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And he's saying that these people who continue to live according to the flesh, these people have no place in the kingdom of God. Okay. Now, I want to make a distinction between those people who are the children of the light that are struggling against the old man, struggling against the works of the flesh, versus those who simply accept this as an appropriate lifestyle. Okay? What St. Paul is speaking here, he's not saying that unless you are perfect and commit no sin, then you cannot have the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. Because, of course, we know that there is so much emphasis on the idea of repentance and how when we confess our sins, you know, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we should not take this or other statements that are similar to this to mean that anyone who struggles with fornication or with covetousness or with coarse joking or whatever, then that means that those people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. We shouldn't take it in that sense. The sense that we're saying is these um, characteristics and these actions are what categorize the old man. And someone with this old man mentality lives and breathes this lifestyle, right? This is, this is natural and normal because this is the state of the flesh. This is the state of the flesh. So now having been called from this life of darkness to a life with, of union with Christ, you must change this. You have to start working, and of course through the grace of the Holy Spirit working in you, to move from here to here. Okay, from to go from one place to the other. And so this is a lifelong struggle. And this is why we call it sanctification, right? A person is being sanctified in their life, meaning it is a struggle. And this, again, goes to the sacrifice. We are sacrificing the works of the flesh. We are sacrificing our natural inclinations. The things that our flesh desires, we are giving it up. We are pushing it away. That every time the thoughts come, every time the desires and the temptations come, we are pushing it away. So it is an active struggle against the flesh for the rest of our life. And every time, of course, that we fall, okay, we rise up again. Okay? Like, like this is like an analogy. Like, if you walk into a room and you see somebody lying on the ground, okay, what are you going to assume? That at some point they were standing, right, and they fell because normally people are standing, right? So you're going to assume that he fell, okay? So this fall, okay, is contrary to the normal nature that God created us with before the fall, right? This, this, this falling down is not our normal posture. It is not our normal nature. We were upright, and then we fell, okay? So when we are struggling... Right in this, what what is a person after they fall down? What do they do? They get up again, right? That is that means that person is alive, right? Because nobody falls and then just decides, eh, I'm just going to stay here. I'm just going to crawl around for the rest of my life, you know, because I don't want to stand again, right? But that's exactly what like when you have someone who is now a Christian, 
They have been given the power to rise. Right? That is the power that we are given. We have the power to rise. We have the power to repent. We have the power to change. We have the power to get up again. And every time we get up, we are cleansed from that sin. And the Lord says, I remember your sin no more. Okay? So in, in his eyes, you know, when a person who is a Christian falls into the sin of fornication, let's say, and they regret that sin, and they confess that sin, then they get up again, and in the eyes of God, they are not a fornicator. Right? They are clean. They are spotless, without blemish, because their sins have been wiped away. This is why the works of Christ are so important to us, are so necessary for us, because no amount of good work is ever going to make us so that we never sin. We will all, we, 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 without him, we would fall and we would stay down. Okay? Actually, we were all down. Like before the coming of Christ, everybody was walking around crawling on their bellies. You know, in that sense, like there was no one could get up. Right. It's like it's like in the in the this is why everybody like when Christ came, everybody was like, who is this man? He's So different from everybody else because he was the only one walking. You know, it's like everyone else was like crawling on their bellies. They'd never seen anyone who wasn't crawling on their bellies. Everyone is crawling on their belly. And suddenly this man comes who is walking and it was the most bizarre thing anyone had ever seen. How are you walking? What is this even? What does this mean? And Christ says, oh, you can walk like me. And nobody believed it. Well, some people did. So, so he's saying, I have given you the power to rise. So when you fall, rise again. The person who chooses to rise is not the one who chooses to live in this life of darkness. And they have inherited the kingdom of God. Those people he is speaking about here are those people who even after having received this ability to rise, choose not to. They, they choose to remain, um, to remain down. So he says, don't continue to live according to the pattern of life you had before. Like, you know, like what we said last time, like Christianity is not just a set of like a belief system, right? It's not just like I accept certain facts as being true. That, that's not Christianity. Christianity is, yes, I accept certain facts as being true. And as a result of that, I must orient my life around those facts. I must live according to that knowledge that I now have gained, which of course means having a relationship with Christ, whom now I believe in. Um, so so um, it's very important for us to to understand that dif that that difference, okay? Because sometimes people who are Christians and people who struggle against sin and confess often, that confess with or that struggle with maybe a specific sin that they struggle with for a very long time, they begin to lose hope. And they begin to think that, well, maybe I'm one of these people who says, you know, St. Paul here is saying that I will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm saying, no, there's a difference between someone who chooses to live in sin and accepts it as being good versus someone who fights against it but fails often. Okay, there's a, there's a, there's a very big difference. It says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So who is this who deceives with empty words. The people who are crawling on their belly. Their worldview is that this is normal life and you should live like this way because that is the right way to live because that's the way we've always lived, right? And whatever natural urges you have, you should indulge those urges because why not? Why not be happy in your life? You know, the, the idea that we are the masters of ourselves and that there is no one that we submit to over us, that 
we that there is no creator that there is no eternal life like people who have these these this worldview the way that they speak and the way that they live are very contrary to the christian worldview because obviously we have very different beliefs and we have a very different lifestyle as a result of the beliefs that we have right so the world is promoting that life of darkness that does not inherit the kingdom of god that saint paul was speaking about they promote it it is the natural state of the world right so so you don't have to put any effort to accept that state the ones who are putting the effort are to bring themselves out of that state to a higher state to a better place to a to a place that's governed by a different set um, of rules the world tries to cope with the harshness of reality by indulging in the worldly things like for instance someone who you know maybe because their life is very difficult and they have all kinds of stress they start doing drugs or they s become alcoholic or whatnot that is a way of coping with the stress in this life right whereas those who are believers well we believe god is granting us comfort a different way and while maybe the person who drinks alcohol forgets their troubles for a few hours whereas the person who turns to christ for comfort can overcome that stress and feel comfort comforted and consoled for a lifetime right um in first uh, thessalonians chapter 4 saint paul is speaking about those who are mourning because their loved ones have died right and he's so he's saying the worldly way of dealing with people who have died is to be very sorrowful obviously this is what he says he says but i do not want you speaking now to the thessalonians the christians saying but i don't want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope right the people who are non-christians they have no hope they have no hope when when your, a loved one dies what hope is it that you have then he goes on he says for if we believe that jesus died and rose again even so god will bring with him those who sleep in jesus meaning if we believe that the lord jesus christ died and rose and he was resurrected and we then we believe we will be resurrected and we believe our loved ones will be resurrected and that we will all be united together so what do not sorrow as those in the world who have no hope right so these people with the that with these empty words these deceptive words because they are speaking from a completely different perspective that doesn't see the full picture right this is why saint paul he says who who can be the one to judge a christian no one in the world can judge a christian because you are operating again you know from a very limited set of, of 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 facts and knowledge and understanding whereas the christian is operating on a completely different plane on a completely different level of understanding you know that would be like ants that are coming to judge human beings the ant has no capacity to judge its view of the world is limited doesn't understand reality as it is right so let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of god comes upon the sons of disobedience those people who are choosing to live in that darkness right who are speaking these empty words who are indulging themselves in the works of the flesh they are the sons of disobedience and the reason he calls them the sons of disobedience is because it's not just that they are ignorant of the truth but they actively reject the truth okay god communicates to us in many many different ways and it doesn't have to be with a vision you know or a voice that we hear god speaks to us through our consciences he speaks to us in in, in many ways and he is calling us all to the truth maybe all of us are in different stages of 
realizing that ultimate truth. But we are all on that path somewhere and that spectrum, right? The sons of disobedience are those people who reject any means by which that God is trying to communicate to them, right? Those people whose consciousness have been seared, those people who, 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 who do not even follow the natural law, the people who are, are rejecting kind of even the moral sense of right and wrong that is in them, right? Those are the sons of disobedience. So he's saying, do not be like them. You Ephesians who are still living in this pagan society, do not be like the rest of the people who are around you, right? Very applicable to us as the church. It's like we are living in society that doesn't share our beliefs or our values, our way of life, our hope, our understanding of the world. Do not live like them. Do not be partakers with them. Why do you want so much to look like them, to be like them, to spend time with them? We have so little in common. Yes, we look like human beings. Both of us, us and them, look like human beings. We look the same. But our trajectory of life is completely different. There's, there's nothing else in common other than our physical appearance, right? So when we are, even when we speak about evangelism and bringing people, this is the importance of that. Like, don't take the evangelism lightly. We are saying, I want you to change your tra trajectory completely. I don't want you to be the sons of disobedience anymore. I want you to come and to be the sons of light. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Right? You, you know what it was like to be in darkness before your conversion to come to Christ. You knew what it was like to be in darkness, but now you are light. One of the things I think that those of us who are the cradle Orthodox, the ones who grew up from their childhood in the Orthodox Church, is one of kind of the disadvantages of that is that maybe we don't understand what it was like to be on the outside. We don't understand what, what the experience is for those people who never had the joy of the faith, who never had the opportunity to go to church, who never had any of these things. And we maybe take all of the blessings and the gifts that we receive in the church, we take it very lightly. You know, we take it for granted. And, and it's a sad thing sometimes. Whereas those people who are on the outside, who come to the church later in life, maybe they appreciate so much what it is that they found, just like in the parable of the man who went and he sold all that he had to purchase the field that had the treasure buried in it. He, 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 he sold all that he had to come to the field because he realized the field is so valuable, right? Saying, now that you have become children of the light, this is not something, you know, to be, you know, taken lightly, that you are now these children of the light. This is, this is a great, great calling that you are now the dear children of God. You should now imitate him. For the spirit... The fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So you will begin to be um, transformed, right? You will begin to be transformed. Don't look at those people who are on the outside and be jealous of them. Don't look at those people on the outside and want to be like them or copy their way of life. Don't look to them, right? In, in Psalm 73, 3, it says, what For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So you don't say, well, you know those wicked people who are out there living in wickedness when they don't have all these rules and stuff that they have to follow? Well, look, they're enjoying their life. They're being successful. They're doing it. Why can't I be like them? Right? That's what here the, the psalmist is saying. I was envious of the boastful. 
right? I was envious of the wicked because of their prosperity. He's saying, don't look at their life and desire it because their life is empty. Their life has no hope. Their life has no future. That even if there is a period of time where there appears to be prosperity, that prosperity is um, very, very limited. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Okay? So he says, um, you were once in darkness, now, now you are in light. Walk as children of the light, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. This wor word that's translated finding out can also be translated proving or discerning what is acceptable to the Lord. Okay, proving or discerning. Now that we are the children of the light, we discern and we learn and we experience what is acceptable to the Lord. There is a, a writer who, for the longest time, was considered to be St. Ambrose, um, but then later it was, re re it was realized that he wasn't St. Ambrose. Um, so we don't know who he is. So we call him Ambrosiaster. So whenever you see or hear the name Ambrosiaster, it's like mm, pseudo-Ambrose. He's not really Ambrose. Um, but this is what he said. From this abundance of his holiness and goodness, it is possible to know what works delight God. In his holiness we are purified. In his mercy we are brought to full and perfect righteousness. Right, from the from the abundance of His holiness and goodness, it is possible to know what delights God. You know, in the Psalms that it says, "Taste and see that the Lord is good." Taste and see, meaning, how do you know that the Lord is good? You have to taste it. You know, kind of like parents that tell their children to try a certain kind of food that they've never tried, and the first response of the kids is, "What? I don't like it." Well, you've never tasted it. How do you know if you like it or not? Or the reverse. Sometimes children will think that something is going to be so great that they've never experienced without realizing how horrible it actually is. We have uh, a certain understanding of things, but once you experience something, you gain deep insight into it. When you taste the Lord, then you see that he is good. You see his goodness, and it is a, an experience that we have. So when we are children of light, walking with the Lord, tasting and seeing, okay, we are, we are learning what is acceptable to the Lord. We are learning how to understand his commandments. We are learning why his commandments are so important. We are experiencing what does it mean to quench the spirit and what does it mean to be filled with the spirit. And we notice a difference of life when we are with Christ than when we are far from him. You know, anyone who has been a Christian for some time can discern, you know, when we are away from God. We feel that our life is bland and stale and sad and depressed. And we are, we are with Christ, we feel that our lives are energetic and joyful and, and, and with purpose and with zeal and desire and wanting to serve and wanting to do good. You know, we you feel like there's a very, very big difference. We see, for instance, the effect that prayer has when we pray versus when we stop praying or when we fast versus when we stop fasting or when we come to church versus when we stop coming. For long periods of time, we feel the change that happens in our life. This is discerning what is acceptable to God through our experience of the Holy Spirit um, working in us. And in this we grow in faith. In this we grow in understanding. Walk as children of the light and you will have discerning of what is acceptable to God. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Right? Having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. What, is, what does that mean, to expose the unfruitful works of darkness? How do you expose unfruitful works of darkness? 
I don't know. No answers? Yeah, you got that from that picture. <laughs> yeah. You shine a light on them. So what does that mean? You carry Bibles with light coming out of it, and you just aim it. Contrast. Okay? By your being good. Okay. You so expose the badness of badness. Very good. Right? So that's one way. I call that like the passive way. Passive way is by your own example. By your own example that then will be contrasted with that. You know? Like if, if you had a group of people who curses all the time. Maybe at work we see this. Like people cursing, cursing, cursing. And then you are an example of a person who doesn't curse. And you never say anything about you're upset with cursing or you don't like cursing or it offends you to curse or I choose not to curse. You don't say any of that. You just don't curse. Very quickly, everyone will pick up on it, right? Whether they choose not to curse or not, that's a different question. But there is something about your example that says, I believe cursing is wrong because I choose not to do it, right? And so just that fact itself, being faithful to what we believe, because a person who walks in light naturally does what? Illuminates Right? So if you walk in a dark place, you illuminate the place. That is a passive, passively, meaning, meaning without even trying to take any specific action to expose anything, you find yourself exposing things just by being present. Like when you light a candle, even if it's a small candle in a very dark room, it illuminates the room. Right? You'll be able to see a little bit because you've lit um, the candle. St. John Chrysostom, he says what? He says, he has said, you are light. Light exposes what takes place in darkness. Insofar as you are light, your goodness shines forth. The wicked are not able to hide. Their actions are illuminated as, through, as though a lamp were at hand. So that again, you know, says that, well, if, if, my, if, if my mentality is, well, you know, I'm nervous that I'm different from everyone. You know, whenever they say crude jokes, like when he was saying about the coarse jesting, jesting at the beginning, uh, if I don't laugh at them, then I'm going to be like, there's going to be tension. People are going to, I'm going to feel uneasy and people are going to feel, feel uneasy. And I don't want people to feel uneasy. You know, this whole thing is like, I don't want people to feel uneasy and I don't want to offend people. Like, that's like that our number one reason to excuse anything. I just, I just don't want to make people uneasy. You know, like I'm turning it into like as though I'm doing them a favor. You know, for their own for their own sake, you know, I don't want them to feel uneasy because I care about them so much. St. Paul's life was not characterized by not making people feel uneasy. And Christ's life was not characterized by not making people feel uneasy. You know, actually, I was driving here. <laughs> and there is like this huge Hindu temple that's being built across the street from a church that I drive by when I'm on my way here. And I don't know what came into my mind is like, in our modern day, whenever we see you know, like uh, like a non-Christian group like that, maybe build a temple or or something like that. We're like we're like happy for them. Like, oh, that's great. You you have a place to worship and you have a place to spend time with your community and you're like that's like the normal, I think, more modern way of seeing something like this, um, because we live in a pluralistic society. Not necessarily that we're going to go attend there or that we're going to go give them donations or that we really support their religion. But part of us is like, yeah, that's good for them, you know. But imagine if St. Paul, like if when he sees something like that, what his response is. You know, even like the responses that we have um, on the Feast of the Cross when we speak about King Constantine becoming the emperor 
And he says, close the demons' houses and open God's house. The demons' houses. You know, because that's how this was seen. The demons' houses. Now we're like, oh, I don't want to offend anyone. I'm afraid to offend people. I'm not going to call them the demons' houses. <laughs> I'm not saying we should. But all I'm saying is, this idea of I don't want to offend anyone, this is a modern-day sensibility of Christianity that didn't exist before, right? Because, because before, what mattered to everyone was their salvation. They weren't calling them demons' houses because they wanted to offend people. They wanted the people to see, like, you guys are worshiping demons. Why are you doing that? You shouldn't do that. Come and worship God, not worship demons. They wanted to illuminate. It was an exposing of the truth. Yes, maybe people would be offended, but the purpose was not to offend. The purpose was not to offend anyone, but sometimes offense is necessary in, in, in pursuit of the truth. You must offend. You will offend. If you walk as children of the light, you're not going to look anything like the darkness, and that will offend many people in darkness, right? So we shouldn't jump to this. It's like, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to make people feel uneasy as our answer to everything. It's okay that they feel uneasy. Let me ask you this. Do you sometimes feel uneasy by what they do? Probably. They don't ever come and say, oh, I don't want to make them feel uneasy, so I'm not going to do this. No, they live their lives. They do whatever they think is right. They, they, they say and they do and they talk about whatever, even stuff that yeah, shouldn't be discussed. They talk about it and they talk about it openly. They never come and say, I don't want to make anyone uneasy. So why do we try to do the same? You know? No, like, like speak the truth. Be yourself. If there's some action that you disapprove of, don't accept it. And don't act as though you accept it because you want to be accepted. It's okay if you're not accepted, right? I would much rather someone to, to bring someone to your camp and to your side rather than for them to recruit you to theirs, right? So that's one way of exposing is just to be walking as children of the light, the passive, what I call it passively. The active way would be like actively rebuking, right? Now, this one takes more, um, you know, more care and consideration of when and how to do it. But at the very least, when someone comes to me and asks me a, a question directly, or what do I think about something directly, or I'm called to make a comment about something openly and directly, not just indirectly from my actions, but directly with my words, then I should also not shy away from being direct. This is what I believe. Am I going to make you uneasy? I don't care. Be uneasy. You have to be uneasy. No one is going to change their course of life unless they're uneasy. There has to be a period of uneasiness, to, to say the least, before someone even considers the idea of, you know what, maybe the whole direction of my life is wrong and I need to change. I don't, can't imagine any, anyone ever going through that process without feeling uneasy at some point. So be the, be the, the source of uneasiness. It's okay to make people uneasy. Right? Again, our goal is not to offend, but we should also not just say, well, you know, if I offend people, like that's the worst possible thing that can happen. No, it's not. It's not the worst possible thing um, that can happen. He says, expose the unfruitful works of darkness. And in terms of us exposing through um, our life and our actions, we have to live that life, right? We have to be faithful. St. Jerome, he says, no one is prepared to admonish sinners except one who does not deserve to be called a hypocrite. Only those prophets who were themselves unpolluted by any stain of sin were in a position to upbraid others of, for their wrongdoing. 
For this we learn that the one who is in the best position to reprimand is the one who cannot himself rightly be reprimanded in return. Meaning if you want to be light, don't short circuit your light by falling into the same sin, especially publicly, to be seen by others that you yourself are saying that you stand for a religion that is against those things. Because then you, sh you completely short circuit your witness. You know, like if you curse even once, then now you can, you're not going to expose anybody. You're not going to shed light on anything. Now you've essentially given them permission to do so because that is what they do and now it is what you do, right? So we have to definitely keep that um, in mind to be, to be faithful. Um, also, to expose darkness, we have to understand what darkness is. Darkness nowadays is very subtle. Yes, there are things very clear and obvious. But there are some things that are very subtle, that are very hard to determine. Like, what is this? Is this darkness or not? My uh, my daughter, she's in a Christian school, and she had to read these books. And one of the books was about uh, a school play, Peter Pan. And all the kids in the school were, um, you know, some of them wanted to audition to be different parts in the play. And so there was this little girl, and she desired to um she wanted to to be peter pan in the play and the other boys that were her age there they said no you can't be peter pan because you're a girl and she was sad okay and she went home and she went home to her mom and her grandmother and they said why are you sad said oh i wanted to be peter pan in the play and they said oh you can be peter pan you can be anything you want to be and she's like really yeah go and audition for peter pan and so she went and she auditioned for Peter Pan and she got to be Peter Pan and she was the best Peter Pan ever in the whole universe. So that was the whole story. Something about the story made me uneasy. Like if it was 20 years ago and I read that story, fine, whatever. Like I wouldn't have paid attention to anything. But something about that story just uh, didn't sit right with me. So I researched the author of this book and I realized this author was like one of these authors that writes all these LGBT books for kids. So that definitely was a red flag. And so I contacted the school and I told them this and they agreed and they removed the book completely from the curriculum and all books related to that author. But notice how subtle it is that they begin to infiltrate our minds. Who would read this and just think, oh, okay, it's a kid's book in a Christian school. Like, you, you, you have your guard down, you're not even paying attention. Like, okay, what's the big deal, Peter Pan, whatever, you know? Like, no, there is a message, right? And, 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 and the message can be exposed, but you have to be informed. You have to read and understand and research and be awake. If we just kind of open our mouth and accept all the garbage that people want to put in it, then they will, and we will receive it, and we will accept it, and we will not understand because we shut our eyes to the truth and the reality around us. It's not nice to always feel like we are attacked or that someone is trying to brainwash you or to, you know, push an ideology. But that's the world we live in. Even when it comes to first graders in a Christian school reading a book about Peter Pan. Like, that's where we are. That's the life we are in now. And we have to be careful because if we are, if we, if we are not, then we won't even be able to identify the darkness. Right? In order to expose. 
For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Okay? There is a difference between um, speaking about something to inform and to warn. Okay? It is shameful even to speak about those things which are done by them in secret. What does it mean? It doesn't mean you can't speak about the acts of sin. It means that when you speak about them, you are not speaking about them in a casual way, in an indifferent way, in a positive way. No, you're speaking about them to warn people against them. You are warning people against sin. It's like, hey, this group of people, this is what they believe, and this is what they practice, and it's wrong, and you stay away from them and don't, don't be with them. Okay? That's good. But here when he's saying it is shameful even to speak, it means don't speak about sin casually. Right? Don't speak about it in a way that, that like could p- promote it or without condemnation. Um, because when you speak about sin casually, what happens is it gradually erodes um, it gradually erodes our offense to sin. The more you speak about something in a casual way, it, it whittles down your defense against it and your view of its sinfulness. And I'll give you the perfect example for this. This book, After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. This book was written in the 1980s, and this book was essentially the manifesto of homosexuality in America. It was written by two PhDs, one of them a PhD in psychology and another PhD in marketing. The perfect combination of how to manipulate people. Okay, And their philosophy and their strategy at least one of the strategies that they used, they had like multi-phases, okay? They've thought through, it's very in-depth. But one of the phases that they used was called desensitization. And the way desensitization works is present the idea of homosexuality without any morality associated with it. It just exists, right? It's just something that exists in the world. We're not saying that it's good. We are just presenting it, okay? This is some quotes from this book. It says, you can forget about trying right up front to persuade folks that homosexuality is a good thing. But if you can get them to think it is just another thing, meriting no more than a shrug of the shoulders, then your battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. Right? He's saying, don't try to push that it's good, because when you try to push that something is good, you're going to elicit a reaction, which is like, no. I reject this. This is contrary to my moral system, so this is wrong and bad, and people are going to fight back. But if you just present it as a thing that exists in the world, then after a while, maybe at the beginning when you hear about it or, th- or see it, you'll, you'll have some kind of negative reaction to it, but eventually you'll get tired. You know, you'll get tired of seeing it over and over and over, and you'll just accept the fact that it's there. It says, what the fastest way to convince straights that homosexuality is commonplace is to get a lot of people talking about the subject in a neutral or supportive way. Just neutral. Doesn't you just talk that it, it, it's something that exists in the world? Um, then it says, "What talk about gayness until the issue becomes thoroughly, thoroughly tiresome." This is what he means. It is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. If you're going to speak about something that is sinful, label it as sin. Label it as wrong. Teach it from a perspective of we want to warn you about certain way of life and certain beliefs. Not that we're just talking about it because it, it's, you know, no. We have to be very careful because this is how we become desensitized to sin. 
But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Like this is imploring all of us. He's saying, awaken from sleep. Don't just live your life, you know, drunk. Don't just live your life because you want to enjoy your life and have pleasure and success, and that's your goal in life. This world is a battlefield, and people are trying to destroy you. If you don't put up your guard, you will be destroyed. If you don't put up your guard and protect yourself and inform yourself, then you will be destroyed. Awake, you who sleep, rise from the dead. Here, this death is like the, 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 the death of, of drunkenness, the death of just being completely desensitized to anything, that I go through my life without any purpose, without any real like drive for holiness. You know, That's the worst thing that a Christian can fall into, the lukewarm Christian. You know, the person who comes to church on Sunday but lives their life like, you know, like, like everyone else. To be th in the darkness. He says, the things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Meaning it is the nature of light to expose. That's actually its entire function. The entire function of light is to expose darkness. If the light doesn't expose darkness, then it is not light. And it has no value. Just like... When, when Christ was saying, you are the salt of the earth, and if the salt loses its saltiness, okay, how can it be seasoned, right? The whole purpose of the salt is to season, and if the salt no longer can season, then it's worthless, and it is thrown away, right? Saying, this is why you're here, right? You are the light that makes manifest. The, it, it brought to my mind the famous quote from St. Anthony, it, this quote was actually recently quoted by uh, one of the House of Representatives, representative from Texas, regarding the transgenderism issue. He, he brought this up. He's not orthodox. He, 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 he quoted this verse. He said, a time is coming when men will go mad, and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him, saying, you are mad. You are not like us. You know, this is a famous verse that St. Anthony said. Right? A time is coming when everyone will go mad. And when they see someone who is not mad, meaning someone who is sane still, they will attack him saying, you are mad. You are not like us. The darkness will attack the light and say, you are not like us. There's something wrong with you. You should be dark like us. Why are you coming in that? Well, you don't comprehend. When people would see Christ, those people who are like crawling on their bellies, they will attack him and say, you are not like us. You know, Instead of realizing that he is better than you, Right? You are the unhealthy one. You are the sick one. You are the diseased one. And he is the healthy one. You should be like him, not he should be like you. So this is the state of the world that we are in. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but filled with the Spirit. Right? This is, again, a call to all the Christians who are choosing to live their lives in darkness and drunkenness, you know, inebriated. Just kind of their eyes closed. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm going through the motions. Um, and this is the state of, um, th th this state is what he is referring to as death. Right? He's saying, those who are walking this way, right, this is death. 
in, in Revelation 3.1, it says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things say he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Meaning, when I look at you, you have a name. People call you by that name. You are alive in the world. You move around in the world. But you are actually dead. Right? So you who is a Christian appear so like a human being who is alive, but you are dead. And he's telling these Ephesians, now that you are truly alive, you have been given the ability to rise, to awaken from the dead. Don't go back and lay down in the coffin. You know, like a person who has just been resurrected, who is in the coffin, can now get up out of the coffin. You don't go back and sleep in the coffin again. Right? You, you, you rise. A person who has been released from prison and the bars are broken and you can go out, you don't roll right back into the prison again. Right? Use the gift that God has given to all of us to, to grow in him. Redeem the time. Redeeming the time means to making good use of our time, to use it wisely, to not waste it. How is it that we will grow closer to Christ? It is by using our time wisely. It is by investing in our relationship to him daily. That is how we grow. That is how we don't fall back to be dead again. Right? That is how we make use of the Holy Spirit that is living in us and stoking the fire of the Spirit in us and not just saying, well, whatever the world brings, I will accept. Whatever the world tells me to do, that I will do. No, that's contrary completely to what we have been called for. St. Augustine, he says, Aren't these truly evil days? For we spent them in the corrupt body or under its burden among the great tribulations. There is nothing in the world except vain luxuries, without real joy. But there is scary fear, greediness, and deep sorrow. Truly, these are evil days. Yet no one wants it to end, but everyone wants long life. Isn't that the paradox? As much as we acknowledge that this world is corrupted, and there is so much evil, and there are so many bad things here, and yet in the end, what do we want? Long life. We want to be here long. The idea of leaving here frightens us. Well, if we say that here is so bad and there are so many evil things here, then why do we enjoy it here so much? Why are we so attached to the things that are here and not looking forward to the next, right? Not ready to embrace the next. So he says, redeem the time. Don't look at the things that are here or be attached to these things, but wait for the next life. Look forward to the next life. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, seeking and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. He's saying, you want the recipe and the formula of how to live in heaven on earth and to always remind yourself that this world is a temporary place and that it is full of evil and it is full of deception and wickedness and that you should not allow that to enter into you, into your heart or into your mind and that you would live your life as Christ to imitate God as dear children. You want to know how to do this? This is what he says. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let the words of God be your words. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Always cherishing our relationship with God, investing in our relationship with God, speaking to God all day, all day, speaking to him, giving thanks all the time, right? Submitting to one another, growing in humility and gentleness. All these things, if we do them, then 
we will always be we will always remember what our life is we will always remember what our life is about that it is not something that is just about this life about this world about making money about work about whatever it is no it is about this right it is about eternity there is a beautiful depiction in acts chapter 2 about the first church and how is it that they lived it says this is in acts 246 it says so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It's a beautiful image of how God wants us to live with simplicity of heart, contented, praising God, breaking bread from house to house, meaning praying, and like they, they would pray liturgies in the d different houses. Right. So this image of the church that God established on the earth, this is what we should be living. Right. This is walking um, in the light. You know, he spoke about the coarse jesting instead of the coarse jesting and speaking, speaking foolishly, speaking in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Right. Making melody in our heart to God, giving thanks to God in all things, be willing to submit to one another, all these things. Then he goes on and he describes very specifically in the context of a, like a family, what this would look like. It says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Saying that the, the, the human marriage is an icon of the heavenly marriage. The relationship between the husband and the wife is a depiction of the relationship with God and the church. And a healthy and functional marriage is not a one-sided one, but just as Christ offered himself to us and sacrificed himself for us, the husband who is the head sac sacrifices himself in the demonstration of love for his wife. And based on this love, the wife responds with submission to him. Right? Again, as we said, God demonstrates his love, and in response to his love, we submit to him. We follow him. So just as we respond to the love of Christ. Submission here, when it says to submit, doesn't have the same understanding of like submission that, we, that people who attack, you know, speak, like attack this in the world, and they speak about you know, that submission is a bad thing. Right? It is not depicted that you know, or, or it is not like the, the woman isn't is supposed to be a slave or has no mind or has no opinion that's not what he means here when he says wives submit to your husbands right think about other submissions that we have read about in the bible for instance christ submitted to the father in the incarnation right christ is no less than the father but he could he he he, he submitted to the will of the father in the incarnation so the submission of the wife is sharing with the Lord in his obedience to the Father as a sign of mutual love and unity. Okay? Again, that doesn't mean when it says, wives, submit to your husbands, that it's like the man is there giving commandments and everything that the man says, the wife does. That's not, that's not what, thi what this means. But in order for two people um, who are leaders of a family to, you know, to be able to deal with each other and to get along for life, there has to be some order, right? So when he says the man is the head 
and, and, the, and the, the wife who came out of his side, she is to submit to him. It doesn't mean that the wife doesn't make decisions. It doesn't mean that the wife has no say in anything. It just means that there will be times where each of them are at odds or in conflict with one another about something, and there has to be a decision that is made. Who in the end is the one who makes that decision is the man. Okay? But it doesn't mean that the man should not include his wife in making decisions or that he should ignore her. Actually, many times, you know, the woman brings a different perspective on something, and maybe the man would say, no, I agree with your perspective more than I agree with my own. Right? That is not lack of submission, or that is not, it, it, it doesn't mean that the, the, the wife isn't able to express her own voice and to speak and to, to do everything. That's the way that this is depicted in society. When we when the church, when we speak about submission, they're like trying to turn it into somehow the woman is like a slave of the man. That's not what this is saying. But he's saying the husband is the head of the wife, and, and the analogy is that Christ shows love to the church, and, and a, as a result, the church is responding with submission to him. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Meaning, the husband's focus is to sacrifice. Remember, we said love is sacrifice. So, sacrificing himself for the wife, right? Giving himself to her. His focus is not, wife, what can you do for me? His focus is, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? How can I give to you? That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Meaning everything that the, the husband chooses to do, he chooses it to do for the good of the wife, to, to, to offer her something that is good. Again, this is a, uh, a reflection of everything. This harmony is a reflection of everything that, that he was speaking about before. When you walk in light, what are your going? What are your relationships going to look like? They will have. They will be harmonious, right? They will be um, th like like they will be joyful. They will be peaceful. There will be gentleness. There will be unity of mind and heart. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, as he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church, right? The, the husband and the wife are united as one. And so when one or the other attacks the other, then he, they are doing what? They are hating their own flesh. Instead, you should nourish and cherish it, cherish it. You are taking upon yourself this other person to be your own flesh. Like, think about that. Like, when someone is choosing to be married, you're saying, I choose to take this person to be an extension of my body. That we are united as one. Meaning, whatever weaknesses that this person has are now my weaknesses, and whatever strengths that this person has are now my strengths. So whatever it is that I accept upon myself, I have now decided that I will live this for the rest of my life with this person, and whatever weakness is there, I will nourish, I will, I will try to, to improve, try to correct, and deal with that weakness, but I accept that it is there. Just like if I have a weakness on my own, I don't reject myself, you know, we spoke about last time, like, if, you, if your arm gets hurt, you don't cut off your arm, right? Because I, it is my flesh. It is my own flesh, and I love this flesh. I've taken it upon myself. This is what he's saying that marriage is. You're on the same team. You might have different opinions, but you're on the same team. And again, we deal with one another in patience and gentleness. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Also, this is a statement that is very clear when it comes to marriage, right, in the sense of what is a family. Nowadays, we have people who are trying to destroy the idea of the nuclear family, that a family consists of a a man and a woman who are married and having children, right? It is very clear from just this part that there is one man who is the husband, there is one woman who is the wife, and they are joined together, right? And each of these is a part of a family that is consisting of a father and a mother, right? And, and then they have children, and those children live with the parents, right? And they grow until they it is time for them to, to leave. In Malachi 2.15, it says what, speaking about marriage and a man and a woman, he says, but did he not make them one? Meaning, did he not unite uh, Did he not unite the man and the woman to be one in marriage, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none de deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. He's saying the unity in marriage and the purpose of marriage is not just companionship, although companionship is something that we, that we need as human beings, but it is for the purpose of the godly offspring, meaning the family is like the incubator, right, for, 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 for godly people. Where do we learn good habits? Where do we learn and are instructed about God and, and, and how to live our lives and all that? It is in the family, more than the church. The church definitely plays a role, but in the church, we are in the church a few hours a week. But in the family, we are there every day. So this is the purpose uh, of marriage and a very important uh, role and a very important characteristic of the family, which is why the devil wants to destroy family. He wants to destroy the concept of the man, destroy the concept of the woman, dis dis destroy everything about it. Because if you destroy it, then you can no longer have what? Godly offspring. It's not possible to have godly offspring when you destroy the marriage. God, God makes it very clear. This is what? Family is. And, and if you destroy this, where would the godly offspring come from? Glory be to God forever. Amen. Any comments or questions? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing in all things, Father, and teach us, O Lord, how to walk in the light and not in the darkness. Help us, O God, always to be careful and alert for all the things that happen in the world around us that would lead us to sin or to fall or to be confused or to walk in a path contrary to you. Teach us, O Lord, how to be always faithful to you and how to experience your presence day by day in our lives at all times so that we'll be drawn closer to you and would imitate you, O Lord, as your dear children. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, 
For thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God, the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. Also with your spirit.